but we forget who we are in bad times. That cookie jar is a reminder of who the f you are, where the f you came from, how much more strength you have when times get bad. So it's, it's something I made up. I, I make up a lot of shit. Life is f***ing hard, man. We all talk about, like, social media shit. We all talk about the great times of life. I don't talk about the great times of life. I'm a happy motherfucker, and if you don't think I am, Merry Christmas. I don't give a f***. What's cracking? Welcome to episode 25 of the Jim Rohn Podcast. The quarter century mark. I have to say I'm extremely proud of this new program and what we've been able to get done in such a short period of time. The numbers have been amazing and so has the feedback, but I'm most fired up about the conversations that we have had right here each and every week. And I will put our guest list up against anybody else's 25 episodes in. Some truly amazing people with some truly amazing stories have rolled through my podcast and this week is no different. Because this week, my guest is a man that everybody needs to know. His name is David Goggins. And in a moment, you'll hear about a kid from a small town who watched his alcoholic father beat up his defenseless mother. A kid whose skin color made him the target of rampant racism in high school. A kid who saw the military as his only way out. But that kid became a man. And not just any man, someone who has been called the toughest man in the world. A man who became the only member of the armed forces to ever complete Navy SEAL training, Army Ranger training, and Air Force tactical air control training. Goggins is now one of the best ultra marathon runners in the world, despite the fact that he hates running. And he's also the world record holder for most pull-ups completed in 24 hours. You might think it's his body that gets him to these finish lines, but he will tell you it's his mind. I could run down his accomplishments and accolades for an entire episode, but his resume does not do justice to his story. And I've got his story on tape. This guy is a a one-of-a-kind, and you're about to get a lifetime of inspiration out of one hour's worth of listening. Right after I tell you about my friends from Zipa. Now, here's the deal. If you or somebody you know snores, you've got to get a Zipa. Go to Zipa.com, and here's why. Snoring is not sleeping. If you snore, it's a disgusting habit that can easily be fixed with a Zipa. Snoring is rude. It's disrespectful to all the people who sleep next to you. Imagine how it feels for somebody to keep you up all night long and there was nothing you can do about it. You want to get to bed, but they keep waking you up. This is what happens every night to a person who sleeps with somebody who snores. If you snore, you need to get a Zipa. Let me spell that out for you. Z-Y-P-P-A-H. That's Happy Z spelled backwards. Zipa is a revolutionary snoring solution that is guaranteed to work. They have hundreds of five-star reviews and a news story showing Zipa being the only solution that does work. So go to Zipa.com. That's Z-Y-P-P-A-H.com. Show some respect to the people who matter to you most. If you snore, you need to get a Zipa. Go to Zipa.com right now. Now, before I get to my conversation with David Goggins, I want to tell you up front, there is a lot of adult language in this week's episode, and I mean a lot. And that's because there's really only one way to tell his story. And that passion leads to some very passionate words from both of us. If four-letter bombs are not your thing, this particular episode is not your podcast. Not this week. 
It's not gratuitous profanity, but there is an inordinate amount of profanity. You have been warned. If you're cool with that, then get ready for an amazing conversation with an unreal human being, David Goggins. A lot of people who knew me back then, there are two people. There are two David Gogginses. So the people back in Brazil, Indiana, in the small town I lived in, they knew a guy that I made up, a guy that didn't care about much, sagged my pants, hung out, was just this cool kid. Nothing, nothing bothered me. Nothing at all bothered me from the surface. What you saw of David Goggins, you would fucking never know the truth about David Goggins. But that stemmed from growing up in Buffalo, New York. So I was born in Buffalo, New York, and my dad was uh, pretty much a pimp. He, he ran prostitutes from Canada over to Buffalo, and he had a line of credit in these different banks as, you know, as long as from here to Mexico. So he, he would bring prostitutes in, and, and that's how my dad did it, and he was also an alcoholic. So he believed in beating the shit out of me, beating the shit out of my mom, didn't believe in school too much. He believed in working the business, and the business, well, the main business was a bar and also a skating rink. So from the time I was walking, I was working that skating rink. Clean up so the skating rink could close about 10 o'clock at night. And then the bar would open up about 10, 10.30. Still open until about 3 o'clock. So we lived in this, in this skating rink bar building all day, all night. And then sometimes I went to school. Sometimes I didn't. The times I went to school, I had a big-time learning disability. Had social anxiety. I stuttered. Had a whole bunch of issues. So I was just that kid, that, this quiet kid. So about 8th grade, we moved to a small town in Brazil, Indiana. And that's when I really started to develop this whole nother, not, not character, but a whole nother person because I was beaten up inside. My, my dad took my soul. My dad took my mom's soul. My, my dad was the person that did that. Well, I mean, as an example, there was one time where your dad knocked your mom out. Right. He dragged her lifeless body down the stairs. What did you do? So... This is how my soul started being taken. So my dad beat the shit out of my mom, drug her down the stairs by her hair. And I was about six years old when this happened. So I still, I think I was born a fighter. Matter of fact, I know I was born a fighter. And at six years old, I got up, tried to beat my dad's ass at six, which didn't work out real well. So I got my ass beat. And um, slowly but surely, my dad kept on beating my mom. And I kept on trying to defend my mom. So from six to eight, this tough young kid, real young kid, became soft. So the more you get beat by somebody, the more you get beat by somebody, the more you get beat by somebody. But I always had this voice in my head to protect my mom. So as scared as I was, I was terrified as shit. I would still go fight this 210-pound man that would just get angry at me and then beat me. So by the time we moved to Brazil, Indiana, I was a shell of that kid who was tough. I wasn't tough anymore. But what I did, though, I realized I'm going to act tough. I'm going to act tough. I'm going to act like I'm from, I'm this tough kid. But inside, I was still a very soft, weak person. All right, so you go to Brazil, Indiana, and now you're an African-American growing up in this community. What was that like? Did you experience any racism? You know what? Growing up in Brazil, it was, it was kind of funny. Um, when I was you know, eight years old, the kids don't know you're black. So when you're eight, you're just another kid playing. So I didn't hit racism too, too hard at that time. My mom met a guy, we moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, and he got murdered. So when he got murdered, 
we moved back to Brazil, Indiana. And I was about, um, so when I left Brazil, Indiana, I was about, you know, 14-ish, 15. And then when I came back, I was in high school. When you're in high school, the kids see you very differently. So now you have color. So when I was in Brazil, a lot of people liked me. So let's not get it wrong. But when you get called nigger a lot, what you see, you don't see the kids that liked you. You see the group of kids that hated you. So, so your focus goes to everybody hating me. So, yes, it was, you know, I'll never forget one time in my Spanish class when I got back to Brazil, Indiana, from Indianapolis, Indiana. So when, so when you go to Indianapolis now, let me back up a little bit. You, you know, you, you develop more of a character. So I, you know, typically learn how to, they say, learn how to be black. Hmm. I came from an all-white town. I, I was white. I acted white from what people say. I acted white. So the black kids called me a sellout. I don't want to be called sellout. So I started acting more black versus like David Goggins, this whole black and white shit, whatever the fuck it is, but it's true. Right. I had to act more black to be accepted by the black people because I'm sure. black. So I started doing that. Start learning more about black culture, about how black people talk. So I started acting more black. So when I left, you know, Indianapolis, Indiana, coming back to Brazil, Indiana, all white people, I walked in the door the first day. I'll never forget it. Big old bull jacket on, number 23, pants sagging, hat kicked. I opened the door, a bunch of the white kids, which I think there's maybe five or six black kids out of 2,000 in an all-white school. I walked in. It's like the music stopped. Huh. I walked in. I was like, oh, shit. This is a whole different David Goggins, a whole different world. I, I, I am now really going to see how it is. And I did. So fast forward, you know, Spanish notebook in class my sophomore year. Nigger, we're going to kill you. Was was all you know in there? You know, several things happened. Several things happened. Um, there was a riding on my car, nigger. We're going to kill you. One, you know, one time they spelled nigger Niger, and I actually talked to my principal, Kurt Freeman. I actually called him up. I'm, I'm I'm trying to write my book right now, going through stories, and so many people from Brazil thought I had it great. You know, they saw the surface, and and when you're a white person, and you look at a black kid who's just walking through the school, picture this. Picture 1995 in Brazil, Indiana, the Klan marched in the 4th of July parade. Mid-90s. 1995. I wasn't there to see it. My mom was. Chuck Jones. I'm dropping names so the people who don't believe the story can go do some research. So I'm dropping names. Now, before I used to say, I didn't say Brazil, Indiana, because people from the town knew me and they get all mad. Your life was good. Your life was that. Be the only in any fucking situation to see how fucking good your life is. Be a five black, to, let's say 10 black families of 10,000 people in a town where the Klan marched in 1995 and tell me I fucking had it good. Come out and see spray painted on your car and bomb will kill you. Tell and it's it on your book. So let me ask you, you mentioned the principal. Right. Did you not go to the principal or somebody and say, here's what's going on here? What's great about Kurt Freeman, he's one of the few people in the town. I just called him up two days ago. He said, I remember, like, and I'm saying Kurt Freeman, dropping the name of the principal. I went to him when I got my Spanish notebook. I'll never forget opening it up. And once again, imagine it. The only one, one of the only black kids in the school opening the notebook up that was kept in the classroom, looking at the first page and seeing a noose, you hanging from a tree, a little stick figure of you hanging from a tree saying nigger, but they spell nigger Niger. Hmm. Like I said before. I had a learning disability. So in high school, I couldn't even spell nigger. I couldn't even spell nigger in high school. They spelled it Niger. Didn't know what the fuck. 
I know I had two G's at like a fourth or fifth grade reading level, which not many people know about because I copied all through school. Didn't talk about that much. Very fucked up kid I was. So I take that notebook. I just left class. Didn't tell the teacher where I was going. Walked out of Spanish class. Walked in the principal's office. Kurt Freeman looked at it. And the best advice he can give me was, I don't, I don't doubt the guy. You know, I don't, I don't have anything against him. Was they spelled nigger Niger. That's, that was his response to it. They're ignorant. They spelled, but guess what, though? What the hell is this white man going to tell me? My mom was working three jobs, going to school full time. And it's not the what was me story. It's the fucking reality of my life story. Yeah, but you correct me if I'm wrong. Is that if he says, hey, by the way, they spelled that wrong. And that's his message to you. Is he not sending you the message? Hey, by the way, you fucking no one's coming to help you. That's what you're, you're on your own. I don't really see anything wrong with this other than they misspelled the word. Is there anything else here? You know that's funny? what I'm hearing. What's good that you say that? That was a turning point in my life. My, my mom did what she could. She, was the, she, she worked her fucking ass off for a long period of time. We lived in a $7 a month place, government subsidized apartments, $7 a month, and we lived on food stamps. And then we slowly moved up to a $230 a month place, and that's where we left. So out of high school, it was $230 a month was the place we lived in every month. So just to go back, what you said, that's what it told me. You're on your fucking own. So he was the best person in my life. Kurt Freeman, my principal, that's why I love him today. He, he showed me in very few terms the reality of fucking life. It's not I feel sorry for myself. It's not what was me. There were a lot of people in Brazil. I had great teachers in Brazil, Indiana, who loved me. Great people there. But let me tell you right now, if you don't think it was fucking hell to be in that fucking town, be one of the only few black people, please fucking get a break. Understand. So paint that picture and having the, the, the mentality that I had to have to go from a learning disabled kid, a stuttering kid when I was in elementary school, a, a kid that copied on every fucking test. You know, you remember the I-step test? Sure. The only reason why I got from sixth grade to seventh grade is because this kid that I knew, I talked to him and say, I'm going to copy off this fucking test on you. Mm. So the only reason why I got there. So everything I did was just, I was trying to survive. I was trying to survive. My mom didn't know how much school I missed. She was gone from work. I missed almost all the school. Your father was abusing you and your mother. You came from an abusive household, a learning disability. You weren't going to school, and you're dealing with this. I mean, I can't imagine how anybody would think. Of course, it's their hometown. That didn't happen here. Well, you tell me. It happened here. It's clear it happened there. But then you're 21, right? So just jump ahead to this for a minute. Now you're 21. Now you're out in the real world with yourself, and you go from weighing a buck seventy-five. To 297, David. <laughs> like, like, what happened? What was going on in your life at that point? Well, I have to back up to where I was 19. Okay. So I graduated high school at 19 because I got held back. Okay. Got held back. And um, so at 19 years old, so at my junior year in school, the only reason why I learned how to read and write really was because I went to take the ASVAB test to get in the military mm-hmm. my junior year. And to get in my job, I had to get a 50. I wanted to be Air Force pararescueman. It's guys that jump out of airplanes, special operations guys, and they save down pilots. Baddest job in the world, I thought. I was like, man, I need to do this shit. So I went to take this ASVAB test, and I thought, fuck it, I'm going to copy. So I always do. Find somebody, copy. I got a 20, because I couldn't copy, because the guy gave an A test, a B test, a C test, all different tests. So I came back a month later. He had to wait 30 days after you failed the first test. 
Waited 30 days, came back, got like a, an 18, some ridiculous score, scored even lower. He then said, hey, you have six months to take this test. This is your last time to take the test. You get six months to take it after you fail it twice. So my mom scrounged up enough money. We had um, a tutor that I had for $15 an hour. We didn't have much money, so I had her for four hours a month. So this is where my work ethic started to come into play. So I started working my ass off. I had to get the fuck out of this town. I had to get out of here. I had to do something with my life. And the military was my only way out. And I had to get character. I, I, I had no character. I have, I have nothing. I had, I had no self-esteem. I was nothing. And the military was going to beat the shit out of me to give me this shit. Roger that. So I studied my ass off. Studied so hard. I, I, I memorized. So how, like how I learned today is I memorize. I don't know it. I memorize it. I take a picture of it. Another picture. I go back. Another picture. And I get it. And I can take a test, I can pass it. Went back, took the test, I passed it. Now, what sucked for me, though, was in pararescue, I didn't know how much water. So what gets people out of special operations training? And I was the, only the 36th African-American Navy SEAL in the history of the SEAL teams in over 70 years. Right. Why is that? Blacks and water don't fucking mix too well. Period, dot. Say what you want, it's just what it is. Um, our, our bone density is a little heavier so a lot of African-Americans are negative buoyant, which means we sink. So swimming is fucking hard when you're trying to fight yourself in the water and stay up. I know any of this shit. So I train real hard. I train real hard. I get into pararescue training. There's about 200 kids. I'm the only black person in the whole training program. I pass the swimming portion. I, I pass the running, everything else. But what comes up in training is stuff called water confidence. So I'm going to tell you how I gained all this weight. So I'm 175 right now, 19 years old. And I'm starting to get self-esteem. I'm starting to read. I'm right. My, my education is now of a high schooler. I passed this test. I'm in the Air Force. I get through boot camp. I had a little setback in boot camp. But I get through boot camp. I'm now on this training program. I get to about the second, third day. This water confidence comes out. Pretty much what it is, is all, our whole lives we've been doing what? We've been breathing. Water confidence is where they pretty much... In, in my terms, they, they try to drown your ass without drowning you. Right. They make you so fucking uncomfortable underwater that they, they have you do these certain tasks underwater and you're, I mean, you can't breathe. You're, you're choking on your own air, trying to find more air. You're guppy and looking for air. Go underwater, hold your breath for a long time, get ready to pass out and stay on there any longer. That, that's what it is. While you're, performing a task. While performing a task. So you're wigging out. So once this was presented to me, I realized, fuck, man, I hate this shit. I don't want, I wanted to quit. I immediately wanted to quit, but I quit everything else in life. I cheated. I taken the easy route. I'm going to tough this fucker out. So this program was about 10 weeks long, and I was six weeks into the program, and I didn't sleep a fucking ounce. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't give a fuck who believes it. Judge me if you fucking want. I was so fucking scared of the water and getting drowned and fucking guppying and having weight belts put on you, going underwater, trying to do crossovers underwater with tanks and shit. It's horrible, miserable. So I'll never forget, about six weeks into the training program, we had to all go, the, the, the guys that were left, the 25, 30 of us that were left, um, we had to go draw some blood, do some medical examination. I forget exactly what it was, but some physical. Because now they were thinking we may go on you know, further on in training, you know, more, more jumping out of airplanes, training to do that, scuba school, training to do that. So they got a more extensive physical. During this physical, they found out sickle cell. 
Sickle cell is a blood disease that some African-Americans have. I have sickle cell trait, but sickle cell trait is still, can still kill you. You know, it killed a few people going through training. So they were not familiar with the sickle cell trait, so they pulled me out of training. I was happy as fucking shit. Okay, I thought they were going to medically disqualify me from the military. So I'm like, fuck, I didn't quit. I didn't quit, right. Hey, right, exactly. I didn't quit. They're going to kick me out. So I'm sitting here for a week. I'm watching my, my class get fucking beat down in the water. People coming up, gasping for air, fucking struggling. I'm like, fuck that. I'm so glad I'm not there, man. I'm so glad I'm not there. I'm out of it. So once you, that was uncomfortable. But when you're used to being uncomfortable, you know how to fucking deal. I didn't sleep. I got through it. I was getting through it. But once you pull your fucking self out of that uncomfortable shit, and now you're sitting back warm, dry, not drowning, sleeping, not thinking about the next fucking day. You gave yourself a way out. That's right. I'm like, you know what? This is nice. <laughs> fucking shit. This, this week is good. A week goes by. The doctor gives me a call. Come into the doctor's office. I'm thinking I'm getting fucking medically disqualified from the military. This is great. Doc goes, no, nah, man, you're good. We don't know much about it. I was second in my class at the time. One point behind Honor Man for first place. A guy named John Elza. First, I'm dropping names, man. I'm dropping names. Check it out. One point behind. He was 262. I was 261. So basically, I'm, I'm fucking kicking ass in the program, but I hate the water. So he says, hey, you're good. Go back into training. So now my mind's thinking, hmm, a week's gone by. I have three weeks to go. Fuck it, man. I can tough this shit out. I go to the CEO, Ed Lumberg. Lumberg looks at me and says, I'm glad you're going back into training, man, but you're starting from day one. They rolled you back, didn't they? Day one. I heard that, and my mind tripped the fuck out. I said, you know what? Starting from day one, all this water and shit, I can't do it. So what I've learned in my life from growing up, I learned how to survive. If you can't read, copy. I went right back to that mentality. So how can I get out of this fucking program and still hold my head up high and not quit? They weren't for sure about the whole sickle cell thing, what it was, what it, what it could have done to me. They put me back in the training. I used that that fast in front of that man's office in about 10 seconds. I thought about how to get the fuck out of this shit to get my pride back. Sir, or Sergeant Lumberg, I'm not for sure about this whole sickle cell thing. I, I don't know what this could do to me. I'm, I'm kind of nervous that, that, that the doc was talking about sudden death for some guys with sickle cell trait and all this shit. I ain't give a fuck about sickle cell. I was scared of the fucking water. So I quit. But they gave me a medical. They gave me a medical because it made sense what I was saying. So instead of me being a quitter from pararescue training, I was a medical. But guess what the fuck that does to a person that knows the truth? He didn't know the truth. He does now. He knew the truth. I knew the truth. I quit. I was scared of the water. So I went from 175. I had a kick-ass job called TAC-P where you control fast movers behind enemy lines. Great job. So F-15s, F-16s, you work with infantry units, you work with Green Berets, you work with some SEALs, you work with anybody that needs a person. You're a ground guy that controls a guy, you know, a guy in the air to drop bombs behind enemy lines. Cool job. But there's no water involved. You get push-ups, sit-ups, running, hardcore job, but there's no water involved. So from about three and a half years, I went from 175 to 297. 297 was, was my max. Why? Because I was trying to find something I was good at. I was mentally depressed because I wanted to be a pararescue man. So that fear of running away from the water 
haunted me. Every day I woke up, this shit was just eating at the back of my fucking head. Every day. So I said, maybe if I lift weights. So what I did was I became 297 because why? Most guys who are fucking big, a lot of guys, I won't say most, have a mental problem. The mental problem is their self-esteem fucking sucks. They're compensating for something, right? Compensating for something. It's the truth. So if I get real big, jack some big fucking weights, I can walk around so nobody knows I'm a fucking bitch-ass fucker inside this big-ass body. I'm the biggest fucking bitch, but if I put this big fucking armor around me, and I got this big old 22-inch arms, and a big old jacked-up fucker, no one will know. If you touch me, I may start crying. Huh. Or you put me in the fucking water, I may fucking get out. You thought you were soft. I knew I was soft. It wasn't thought. Yeah. I knew I was soft. So that's what happened. So... Uh... I mean, it's an amazing thing, those fucking 10 weeks in the water. I mean, you, you just couldn't get away from that. It looked like you got over, but you knew different. You knew different. When, so you get a job. You're spraying <laughs> at night as an exterminator. How did you go from this great job? I mean, it didn't involve water, but you were in the military. When and how did you end up as an exterminator? Well, I decided to get out of the military. Cause I had this, I had this um, pipe dream. I, I, I had a bunch of pipe dreams. When I was playing in the NFL, had a pipe dream, you know, I'm a big guy, let's go play in the NFL ball. Because as a man, you want to find something that's manly. So, and I thought, maybe I can go be the world's strongest man. So, you know, compete in that shit. And then the day, this shit haunted me. The, the, the water, the, the, the quitting, the finding the easiest fucking path, the, the, this fucking road that everybody takes. So, why I can talk about it so clear to everybody right now, and I'm not ashamed of myself, there's a lot of motherfuckers out there right now with the same fucking problem. Hiding from shit. Taking the path. I'm not good at this, so I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go to a place I'm comfortable a doing. A lot, a lot. Don't fucking all of us have this issue? Yes. I mean, you talk about this. There's a four-lane a four lane highway. That's right. And then what's the other one? It's a fucking shovel. It's a shovel. It's what's a shovel. the difference between the four-lane highway and the shovel? Well, the, shovel, well, the four-lane highway is a nice route. The fucking road has just been paved. You have the fucking medium. You have the fucking lines, the dotted lines, the fucking flat, straight line. You have the fucking gas stations. You have all your eateries. You have 32 miles to San Diego. All that shit. You know exactly where you're going. It's an easy fucking path. But then everybody walks past this shovel. So I speak like in parables a lot of times. I speak crazy. So in my mind... I kept on on this four-lane highway, but I kept on stepping over the shovel. And I'm like, where the hell does this shovel go? So the shovel goes to where the fuck you want it to go. But the thing about that shovel is the pain, the pain, the suffering, the, the, the failure, the failure, the more failure, the, the not sleeping at night, it's going to be with you for a long time. It's the misery. But the end of that shovel, the end of that fucking path, it's such greatness and such pride and such respect that no one will ever understand it. No one will ever understand it. That shovel is the only path for me. Yeah, but see, the shovel, when I think about the shovel, I don't know about you. What I think about, I think about fucking dirt that I can't get into. I think about when I finally get into the dirt, I hit rock, a rock that That's I can't right. break. That's what I think about with the shovel. That's right. So how, how does that lead me to a happy life, to greatness, to serenity? The only way to get to the happy life for me, and this is me speaking, because the path I was taking, this, this easy road, I was miserable. I became happy when I finally figured out I got to bust through these rocks 
with this shovel and busting through the rocks, you may not go anywhere for a year because you're busting through rocks. While this, while the four-lane highway, people are gone. They're 200 miles down the road, and you're still working on a fucking rock. But once you get through that rock, it's the satisfaction you get from knowing how hard. No, there's no trophies. There's no crowds cheering for you about the fucking rock that you... You know, and only you know, the hard work you put into busting that fucking rock up just to move another inch forward. And I found out how much pride I got from when I started really facing my life from just busting the small fucking rock, moving hardly anywhere. But staying there, busting that rock and getting through that, that's what started building more character in my life was busting the small fucking rocks. Right, so when you're killing roaches at night, you're doing that. You just It is what it is. It's a job. Right. And you talk about these these moments in your life that change your life. You had that principal, and the principal reacted this way. One night you came home from killing roaches, you sat down in front of the TV, and something happened. Something changed your life forever. What happened that night? So I sprayed down steak. Well, I would spray down steak and shake every night. Okay. So I worked from 11 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock in the morning. That was my shift. And, you know, you go in these different restaurants and you spray them down. That's what you do. So every night I would go by Steak and Shake. I knew the owner there and we would sit, you know, smoke and joke for a while. He would get me uh, this special chocolate milkshake, man, and his special cup just for me because I had a 45-minute commute home. So all my restaurants were way out in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I had to drive back 45 minutes home. So basically um, across the street from 7-Eleven was this – my fault. Across the street from um, – Steak and Shake was a 7-Eleven. So I go across the street with my chocolate milkshake and I buy a box of mini chocolate donuts for my drive home. And I drive home, eat these donuts, drink this shake. And when I come home every day, I turn the TV on, I listen to TV, and I take a shower. This particular morning at about 8 o'clock in the morning, I turn the TV on, this show is just starting up. I don't know if it's the History Channel. I don't know if it was Discovery Channel. I don't know what channel on. The TV was on these guys going through Navy SEAL Hell Week. I think it was Buzz Class 224. No, dude, I know what it was. I saw it was 234, wasn't it? No, because I was in 235. So, so, I was, so it, was, it was after that. I mean, it, it was before that. I remember that Discovery doc, though, yeah. man. It, it, it was, had to have been the same thing. That was my time frame. Yeah. So this show came on. I watched these guys getting their ass kicked. Period, dot. So I came out of the shower. I heard hardest training. Some, something about that caught my eye or, 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 or you know it kind of caught my ear so I sat back you know I sat down on the couch started watching the show and I was amazed but I was also very fearful because I put myself I have a really good way of visualizing I put myself with those guys going through that shit and I said fuck that man I saw the water I saw the waves I saw more water I saw the guys jackhammering snot bubbles I saw misery it's Coronado right it's Coronado, cold cold yeah. you know, people think San Diego oh it's, no it's freezing so I got the chance to think back and reflect on how miserable I was in my life, how miserable I have been my, my entire life, how I ran from everything. Whenever an obstacle would face me and hit me, I, I go around it. Yeah, I can read and write now. I got the pararescue training, but the second I got the pararescue training, the water hit me, I went around it. I was so miserable. And it's a lot more than this, this this kind of broke me again, but I was thinking every single day I woke up of my life how fucking pathetic I am by not facing shit. So I sat there and said, you know what? I got to change something. 
I got to change something. So at 297, I went in the bathroom and I said, I looked in the mirror. And what's funny about that is I knew how to gain the weight. It's not like you're, you're, you know, you're, you're fucking dumb. You know you gain the weight. You know you're getting fat. You know that you're trying to find something in life. It was the first time I really saw how different. It was like that show, because the CEO said this in the end. At, at the graduation ceremony, he said, we live in a society where mediocrity is often rewarded. And they talked about the men graduating. These men detest mediocrity. And I wasn't even mediocre. I wasn't even a fraction of what mediocre is. And I knew that. And in that mirror, the reflection of that mirror, that accountability mirror, I call it, was exactly how I felt. You can look at the outside of me and you can tell, man, that guy's insides are fucked up. And they were. So I started calling recruiters up that same day. And I said, I'm going to go fucking be a Navy SEAL. But the problem was I was six foot one and 297 pounds. It's important because why to get into the Navy at my height, I can only be 191. So I called a whole bunch of recruiters and active duty recruiters. And they were laughing. No, not really laughing, but I could tell. It was like fucking fat guy, you know, kind of like, hey, try somebody else. I got to a guy named Steven Saljo. Once again, name dropping. Steven Saljo, he was a reserve recruiter. So he wasn't an active duty recruiter. So there were some hurdles I had to go through. So I came in, saw him. He looked at me, saw how big I was. But he also saw that I was looking for something different. I, a switch changed big time. He saw something different in my eyes, so he worked with me. I had to lose 106 pounds in about less than three months. Because why? I was prior service guy. And this whole, remember that whole, um, why, the whole, two, like 1999 to 2000, the, like the whole computer system was there. Sure. Oh, scared yeah. of all this shit. Oh, yeah. So this is 1999. And they wanted to get me into this class before all this shit. So they were rushing. You had three months. I mean, yeah. you had to get it done. So like, hey, we got to get this done. I'm like, no How the fuck way. you lose 100 pounds in three months? I, I said, there's no way I can do it. So I left. I went back to work. And um, he gave me all. It wasn't just losing weight. I had to retake the ASVAB again. I had to do this again. I had to almost, I had to re-sign up in the Navy again. That I had a hard time getting in the fucking Air Force. So just thinking about going through all this shit again and losing 106 pounds, taking the ass back, I was like, done. I can't do this shit. Went back to work, had a really bad day at work. Really bad day at work. Um, found a whole bunch of cockroaches this day. Whole bunch of rodents. Bad day at work. On my way home, driving from work, I said, I got to fucking change my life. And it was scary. I had the feeling now how I felt then. When, when you have to face yourself... Like that shit's coming back to you right now. Yeah. When you have to face yourself and realize, I'm going to have to suffer a long fucking time. Not like I need to lose 50 pounds in a year or I got to go... But no. I'm going to have to face cold water, face myself every fucking day. And once you make that decision, it's scary as shit. I made the decision. I'm going to lose this fucking weight. So I made the decision. I'm going to run four miles. My first run was a quarter of a mile and I walked home. Sat on the couch, put my head in my hands and said, there's no fucking way. And this went on and this went on and this went on. But I kept facing myself and kept facing myself. And, that, and after a while, I realized when you keep facing this shit in front of you, the, like my motivation would come and go. Motivation is shit. You know, 
I started finding this obsession. I became obsessed with being somebody. And it, and, and it made me crazy. If I was sitting down on the couch, my mom would say, get the fuck up. You ain't moving, motherfucker. Get the fuck up. You want to watch TV? Get a fucking bike and watch TV on the fucking bike while you're moving. Everything became this, this, this burning desire to be great. And, it, and it, it kept, the more I pushed, the more the internal conversation became, we can do fucking more. We can do more. We can do more. You ain't, I, I gave myself no fucking way out. How did, where did it come from though? I mean, is that, I mean, like, fuck, if you could bottle that shit, you'd be the richest guy in the world. We all want that. Is it because we, were you wired for it? Were you pre-wired for it? Was it the way you fucking came up in Buffalo and Indiana? Was it the fucking cockroaches? Where all of a sudden was this, I got to get, mo- get moving, motherfucker, or else I'm obsessed. You know what? It came from me finally. And, and, and there's there's no magic potion. There's no fucking pill you can buy at GNC. Or a switch. No, there's no switch. And there's no... People want to put a fucking title on me, and it makes me so fucking angry. If you've heard my fucking front story, don't give me a title in the back end of this motherfucker because now I'm somebody special. No, no. There's no fucking title. Oh, he's just crazy. He's special. God made him a certain... No, this took me looking in the fucking mirror and being so angry at what I wasn't. Period. And then... Talking to myself every day, telling myself, you are exactly what the fucking people told you you were going to be. You're nothing. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about being, like I said, I visualize a lot. When I was 24, I I was this weight. I saw myself at 50. I saw myself at 50 at 24. How the fuck is this conversation going to go? How is this conversation going to go when you're 50 fucking years old and now not... 300 pounds, you're 400 pounds, and you're depressed as shit. How's this going to go? It's going this way now at 20 fucking four. And it's going really fucking badly. It's going real so bad. imagine another 25 years of that. Yeah. So I saw where my life was going to go, and I said, but you have a fucking choice. Yeah, people called you this. Your dad was this. You couldn't read. God gave you a fucked up fucking life. But let's turn this motherfucker around. What if you can become the baddest motherfucker to ever fucking live coming from this shit? Say it to yourself a couple fucking times. Yeah. This shit will make you obsessed with being fucking the baddest person on the planet. Me saying it now makes me fucking crazy. Because this is what happened. I saw the reality of my fucking life. And I sat down after that .25 mile run, quarter of a mile run, came back, walked. What if this fat, dumb Motherfucker, people said, don't call yourself dumb. That's what it was. It's the truth. Motherfucker from a beat-up house who made up two personalities just to get by so I didn't get beat up in school can become a motherfucker that's a Navy SEAL and whatever else I fucking became. That shit will charge you the fuck up. So you look at everybody who doubted you, everybody, and say, fuck you. The last word will come from David Goggins. Fuck you. Dude, I, I philosophically, I mean, yes. I don't think fucking anybody ever got anywhere without an immense chip on their shoulder, whatever it is. That kind of fire. This is the one thing I need you to explain. Philosophically, I understand this. Mm-hmm. Practically, if you go from somebody who didn't do very much, who had extremely low self-esteem, who was carrying some serious emotional baggage, who had been fucking beaten down, 
But then you are able to like rewire your brain, reframe everything to get to a point where you can endure some of the worst shit imaginable. How? It, it's, it, it can't be as easy as I made the decision I was not going to be that fucking guy. Enough is enough. Or was it that easy? There's, there's one thing that people don't, I don't talk about a lot. I've watched this, and I'm going to miss you right now. Fuck it. Where it is. I vis- when you don't have shit, you visualize being somebody. There's one scene in a movie that to this day puts chills on my fucking body. I watched Rocky round one, or I fought Rocky one round 14, probably, no shit, 100,000 times. I watched it every day I came home from school. Why? I felt like that motherfucker. You know how when Apollo Creed beats the fucking shit out of this guy? I wasn't in a physical fight like that. I was in a mental battle. I was in a mental battle like that. But what charged me up was when I saw him get his ass knocked the fuck down in the 14th round. And this feeling. I got this feeling over me. because Not because he got knocked down. Because everybody was saying, stay the fuck down. Mickey in the corner, stay down, rock, stay down, rock. I saw this motherfucker climbing these fucking ropes. He had silenced everything the fuck out. He knew he wasn't that smart. He knew he didn't have money. He knew he had shit. He just wanted to go the fucking distance. And I saw the pride he had by going the fucking distance. It just put this feeling on me. It does today. At 43, now, it never accomplished a lot. And I saw when he finally got up. And everybody looks at, they don't look at it the way I do. I saw Apollo Creed, when he beat that fucker down, he turned around, hands in the fucking air. But I also saw this. When he turned around to look at Rocky, when he got the fuck up, and he motioned with his gloves to come on, motherfucker, let's go. I saw his face. Apollo Creed's face looked like, who the fuck am I fighting? Who is this? I wanted to feel that. Like Rocky felt. I, I wanted to feel, I wanted to beat everybody the fuck down without, I don't want to fight you that way. I want to own space in your fucking head. I became crazy about that. I became obsessed about everybody, including myself, who doubted me. I want to own space. I want you to wake up at nighttime. It's called taking souls. It's called taking souls. Rocky took Apollo Creed's soul by getting up. I wanted people who doubted me. And every, a lot of people doubted me. I doubted me. I want people to look at me. And they do, whether they admit or not. How the fuck did this motherfucker make it? So what kept me going was the fact I'm a patient man. I can wait 20 years to watch a fucking piece of grass grow for the simple fact of knowing what it's going to take me. I knew that one day, if I stuck with this motherfucker and I failed and I failed and I failed, people don't respect success. They don't. They respect that motherfucker who gets the fuck up after he got his fucking ass shellacked. They, they look at how the fuck, and you watch any fight, any fight you've ever seen in your life, and this guy's beating the fuck out of somebody. You see the guy who just keeps getting blood everywhere. He keeps getting the fuck up. That's who you you want to be him because there's something so deep in that motherfucker that the guy who's beating him is more talented. He's better. He's everything. But I want what that motherfucker has. How do you get up? We all have it. But I dreamed it. I believed it. It became me. It became who I wanted to be, who I wanted to become. 
you know what you did? You created a guy. There were two guys. There was David Goggins and Goggins. And Goggins. I mean, are we talking about Goggins? Is That's this who exactly Goggins what is? happened. That's exactly what happened. I talk about it all the time. So I went from David Goggins, the kid who, the real me, the real me is this very soft, insecure kid who struggled, struggled with wanting to be accepted. I would lie to be accepted. Whatever you want to hear, I'll tell you what the fuck you want to hear, just so you like me. I had to build this fucking guy over here named Goggins who didn't give a fuck about what the fuck you thought about me. I didn't care about myself in a way that people take a lot of things I say and they, they, they take it so fucking far-fetched. They go, he's just crazy. No, I couldn't care about my toe hurts. I couldn't care that my knees are hurting today. I couldn't care so much that I wasn't the smartest kid in school. I, I couldn't care that I failed a million times. A guy that just realized Stop caring so much about bullshit. You got to build this callous fucking mindset that can endure what life has already given you. This is, my, I mean, my life gave me a different set of books than it gave you. It didn't give you the same books it gave me. No. My teacher was different. My school was different. My learning was different. So I had to go back to the learning and study what the fuck path my life was giving me. It's okay. These are my books. My manuals are, you're not that smart. Your dad beat the fuck out of you. you. You're insecure. These are your manuals. Go back and study them. Not ace the fucking test. Everybody's manuals are different in life. These were my fucking manuals. But I never went back and said, how can I learn these? How can I defeat this? I went back and learned from my own life. I spent time with myself. That's all it was. Well, and the message also being... Don't look for that shit elsewhere. Look within. That's right. right. Don't read it in a book. Look within. But let me ask you this. I mean, it seems to me your shit, your shit is so physical. I mean, the ultra marathons, the, the weightlifting, but, but it's more mental than it is physical. Did you rewire your brain? Can you rewire your brain? What the fuck did you do to your head? You can rewire your brain through definitely doing things that you don't want to do. A hundred percent. Everybody talks about this whole thing about fucking mental toughness. There's classes everywhere. Even the SEALs have a fucking class. Eat an elephant one by at a time. <laughs> fucking breathing shit. Fucking visuals. All this fucking bullshit. It's all fucking shit. Yeah, it helps. The best way to fucking rewire your mind is put yourself in ungodly fucking hellish situations. And then learn how your mind... So the best way to learn how the mind works in hell is put yourself in fucking hell. Okay, dear, what about us, though? I mean, I, you did. You did. He, normal people listening like, oh, my God, this is fucking great. I, I probably can't do what he can do, but I want to be mentally tougher. Put yourself in hell. If you're a 50-year-old guy, you're a 40-year-old guy, you're a corporate guy, you got kids, I'm not looking for any excuses. I mean, would you say to me, hey, Rome, put yourself in hell? It's all relative. Okay. My hell, what I had to overcome, I had to go through hell week three times. Had to go through ranger school. Had to run 205 miles, do fucking 4,000 pull-ups. Mine became real physical because I was trying to create that person. I was trying to create a person that can handle anything that God put in front of me. I didn't want to be a guy like that. What's in front of you may not be what's in front of me. But the only way you can build a whole different human being is you got to start from the foundation. The foundation really usually is... What's your childhood about? I don't give a fuck if you're 70 years old. Everything starts from scratch. Scratch is maybe you didn't make the fucking baseball team. Maybe your dad said you were dumb. Something starts from scratch. Yeah, go back to scratch, fix scratch, and then start to move up. But what you were saying, though, you got to find shit that sucks every day. 
What sucks for me is I didn't like running. I still don't like running. I don't like working out. People don't believe it. Hey, let me I don't ask, care. Okay, let me ask you this. You, you had a great, great career as a SEAL. Did you like shooting shit up? I liked it, but I was that guy. It was just part of my job. Did you like that job is what I'm getting at. Did you like being a SEAL? It was okay. Yeah. Only okay. It was okay. Only okay. Yeah. So why did you do a job that was only okay? And that's the reason why I searched for more. So for me, the SEALs was the pinnacle. When I was on that couch at 297 pounds, being a Navy SEAL was the pinnacle. Once I started going through my training program on my own, dropping weight, going through being in three hell weeks, I started realizing this ain't the fucking pinnacle. There's more. There's more to me. There's a lot more. That's why I say the seals are okay. Everything to me now is okay because I realize how much more, not just me. So when people hear me, they, I guarantee you there's titles being driven on David Goggins right now. We are so, we're capable of such fucking great things. And when you put yourself in situations, you start to realize it in that situation with these amazing men that you can hang and even be just as good and better than them. You're looking for what's next. If I'm hanging with the best, I want more than this shit. So it just, that's why it's okay. Great job. There's a lot of great men. A lot of, a lot of men there who get, just got by. I was in a lot of boat crews, men who just got by. I was looking for more in life. Because when you come up for how, you know, how I came up, you're amazed at where you're at now. But you're not satisfied. You're not satisfied. That's what happens to people. The, the refrigerator starts to get real full. People live this life of, oh, I make this kind of money. I have this fucking car. I'm a Navy SEAL or where the fuck you are. The refrigerator gets stocked full. So we start to get more and more comfortable, more and more civilized, I fucking call it. Everything gets nice. And what happens is you start losing the fucking edge. We start putting, oh, I'm 43. I should be taking it fucking easy. We start to put all this fucking shit in our minds that put us in retirement. We put ourselves in fucking retirement. First, I'm 43 years old. I see all these basketball players and shit. Well, I'm 39. I run a fucking 100 miles a fucking week. A week. Yeah. I go to the gym and do 1,000 push-ups here and there. 4,000 pull-ups. There's an age limit we put on shit. We, we, we put these things in our brain. And once our brain gets there, we start to feel how we think we're supposed to feel. We, it is how the mind works. We give ourselves a way out. I've heard you talk about Always. it. You built a wall around your brain. You, you talked about the mileage. Let's hit this for a minute. So you're recognized as one of the best ultra marathoners in the world. But as you mentioned, you were always a huge weightlifting guy. How did you end up in this world, the ultra marathon world? And when I say ultra marathon, I'm not the best runner in the world. So I don't want to get twisted. I, I do believe... You're one of the best, I'm though. one of the best ultra athletes out okay. there. Because why... Most runners who go out and run 100 miles, I can run it pretty fast. Decent clip. I may not be world record pace by any means. A lot of guys may beat me. But you won't see anybody who can do it my pace who can then turn around and do 4,030 pull-ups in 17 fucking hours. See what I'm saying? Yes. It's a combination of both. It's, 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 it's a combination of so once I got through all this shit in my life, I then wanted more. I started realizing the human body is a fucking machine. And it's how you train it. So I once read an article about running. 
runners can't do this. Either you're a runner or you're a power lifter or you're this or you're fucking that. I took all the fucking barriers off my mind once I realized at 24, I was feeding myself a bunch of bullshit. I was my biggest bully. The kids that call me nigger, my dad, my mom, all this shit, it was me. Everything was on me. So I stopped reading the bullshit that all these scientists who say this bullshit about, it's all bullshit. It's people give you fucking theory. Well, I read a book and this guy, if you're 110 pounds, you shouldn't be, no, fuck you. You don't put it to practice. So all I did was I put all this bullshit to practice. So I started to, to develop my own style of working out. And it was, I want to be that guy who can run 100 miles and then go to the gym and deadlift 550. And then I want to be that guy who can go do 400. Hey, yeah, but dude, correct me. Excuse me. You, you hate running, yes. right? You that's fucking the, hate running. That's the beauty of it all. Yeah, you run 100-mile clips at a time. Yes. I bet you run 205 miles at one time. You ran 205 miles straight. 39 hours. But you hate running. Yeah. But I understand this because you better do shit you hate every single day if you're going to break through. What I found out through my journey was what made me who I am today. And I'm not trying to be understood. I'm not trying to be liked. I love who the fuck I am. Finally. Finally. I realized that to be great, it sucks. To be your best, it sucks. And if you don't have this thing in the back of your subconscious that's constantly eating at you, like, if I don't want to go run, and I say, I'm not going to go run. Only thing I'm doing is I'm going right back to David Goggins of old. I'm allowing that person. So whatever comes in my mind I don't want to do, usually you'll see me doing it. Not usually, always. So the things I do the most are the things I hate the most. Why? It makes no sense to normal people. It makes no sense. Do things that are fun. The reward, the reward at the end of the shit I'm telling you is there's no price tag on it. There's just no fucking price tag on every day when you accomplish all these things that you don't want to do, that reward is like, wow, fuck, man. Once again, overcame more shit. You know what, dude? If you didn't know you or what you were about and you were listening to this, I think it might be easy for somebody to say, let me tell you something, man. As long as he doesn't hear, I'm going to say this. That's a miserable motherfucker. Exactly. However, <laughs> dude, dude, you're happy. I hear it all the time. Dude, you're, you're, no, you're happy. Yeah. You're probably as happy as you've ever been, right? In my life. In your life. In my In life. In your life. Dude, tell me about this. I'm going to just skip to this story. It's really important. The ultra marathons. You just, this was something else. You just decided, I'm going to do this. The Badwater 135. Badwater 135. What was that, and how does that fit into this whole thing? Well, I was in SEAL training for so long that I knew so many Navy SEALs that were in training with me. One of the SEALs I knew was Marcus Luttrell. Marcus Luttrell, if you're not familiar, the story is Lone Survivor. Lone Survivor, basically, he was the only guy that lived. Read the book, watch the movie. It's an amazing thing. All the guys that died, Danny Dietz, Axe, Murphy, I knew them all. I was actually in Hell Week with Murphy and Danny Dietz. I was in training with both of those guys. The, the um, QRF force that came in to save him, QRF force is quick reaction force that came in to save him, got blown out of the sky. During this, during this particular mission, I was a heavier guy again. I gained weight, went back to being a bodybuilder. I was a bodybuilder now, got geeked out into nutrition and just being ripped and big and whatnot. And I was at military free fall school with Morgan Luttrell. Morgan Luttrell is Marcus Luttrell's twin brother. They're both Navy SEALs. They both were Navy SEALs. 
It was our last free fall jump. We got on the ground, packing our shit up, getting ready to graduate, while Marcus Luttrell was in the worst incident at that time in still history. I got the word what happened. It was my duty to tell Morgan Luttrell that his brother might be dead. So I went over to him. He knew he wasn't because this whole twin thing. They 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 had these feelings. They They know. know. I thought it was all, I was like, man, you're fucking crazy. Four days later, I get a call. Morgan, Marcus is alive. I was like, it was just crazy to be a part of that. I, was, I wasn't there, but I was a part of the guy. I mean, I told the brother. I mean, I, 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 I had a little piece in this shit. So months went by, and it just kind of bothered me. It was just kind of there. It's just being there. And I said, you know what? I'm going to see what I can do. So I actually went home, and I Googled the 10 hardest events in the world. And I didn't know what was going to come up. I wasn't familiar with, with, with ultra marathons. The far as I'd ever run in my life was 20 miles. And up until this point, so, so this whole year when I Googled this shit, my workout consisted of one body part a day. And I cardioed every Sunday was my cardio for 20 minutes. I did the elliptical fucking training for 20 minutes. Me and this guy named Josh Bikendova. We were in Iraq and the workout was... Your name dropping again, man. Dropping again. Josh Bikendova. What we did in Iraq was we hit weights hard. Hundreds and hundreds. Of, I mean, value. We were big on value, but not big on cardio. But we did big time value. So I Googled um, hardest races. And what came up was this Badwater 135. 135 mile run through Death Valley. I swear to God, I thought it was a fucking stage race. I didn't know people ran 135 miles. I know that's even What, like possible. summer? Like in the summer? 135 miles, 130 degrees. It's summertime. It's in July. Huh. So, um, I call the race director up. So like stage race, like like run like, 20, 25, yeah, hang run 20, out, hang out, chill. have a nice little barbecue. Yeah, get you know have a barbecue. Wake up the next morning, do it again. Um, call the race director up. He asked me a couple questions. The first question he asked me, his name is Chris Costman. Um, he said, "Hey, David, do you do you run ultras? No. Uh, what's an ultra?" He got into that for a little bit. He was quite annoyed with me. He was very annoyed. Why are you wasting his time? Wasting his time. Once again, name dropping Chris Cosman, Bad Water Race Director. I come up on a Wednesday. Very important. Come up on a Wednesday. He says, um, to get my race, you get 100 miles in 24 hours or less to qualify. And then you still might not get in. He goes, where you at right now? He's kind of calling my shit out right now. I go, I'm in San Diego. He goes, um, well, like I said, it was Wednesday. He goes, Saturday is a race in San Diego. It's called the San Diego One Day, where you run around a one-mile track for 24 hours, and I'll see them, you know, and, and you see how many miles you can get. If you get 100 miles in 24 hours, I will consider you in my race. Fuck it. Roger that. Yeah, but dude, you're doing no cardio at that point. No cardio. None. You're just, just going to show up in four days yep. and run 100 miles so in 24 happened, hours. My CEO... Joe Burns was a big geek as far as like um, heart rate monitors and all this stuff. He's a big time geek and stuff. He goes, hey, you need to get a heart monitor. So what the fuck is that? So basically put on, you judge your heart rate. So I ran one run. The run was on, I think it was on Thursday with the heart monitor on for four miles. And then the Friday before the race on Saturday, me and Joe Burns did a full body legs, back. I'm talking about heavy squats, bench pressing, all this shit. Before a 24-hour... So, once again, it wasn't smart. So, I, I get in this race, totally jacked up, legs are sore, messed up, 
And I'll never tell that part of the story. I was going to say, yeah. I'll never tell that part of the story. We did a massive full body workout. Why? Why did you do that? Once again, I was with Joe Burns, who's considered one of the hardest seals around. And I walked by the gym, and my mentality is, fuck it. He's getting fucking hard. And he knew I had a race the next day. So basically, he put me through three hell weeks. So, so Joe Burns was one of my instructors through three of my hell weeks. And I completed two of them. And um, I was like, fuck it. I'm going to show Joe Burns. This motherfucker knows I'm running 100 miles tomorrow. I'm going to fucking get hard with his ass, fuck too. Fuck you, Burns. Yeah, that's right. Pretty, pretty much, that was the mentality. And I, and I love Joe Burns. But still, that's, that was my mentality. Went there, had a hardcore workout. W- woke up next morning for this race. And I had a blue lawn chair. So I, I would see this blue lawn chair every single mile. Rich Crackers and Mileplex. I had my crew person there who was, is, is now my ex-wife. And I had Ritz Crackers and Mileplex. You were going to run 100 miles with Mileplex, Crackers, and a blue chair. That's it. And so I had a poncho liner out there in November. And as you know, November in San Diego is cold as shit. So I get through 50 miles pretty good. Pretty good. I was, I was well tapered. <laughs> so um, but I get to mile 70, and I am broken. I am, to this day, this was the worst pain I've been in in my entire life. I, 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 I would never be able to even, I'm going to try to in my book, talk about the pain I was in during this race and after the race, but I, I can't even articulate it good enough. Hell Week three times, Army Ranger School, yep. all the shit you went through. I was in Delta that Selection was like twice. Delta Selection twice. Yep. The only guy probably to do Hell Week three times in one year that day after mile 70 was the worst pain you've ever endured. So from mile 70 to mile 101. What, what were you dealing with exactly? So what what kind of pain? Was, I hadn't gone to the bathroom, hadn't done anything. So I sat down at mile 70, and I cleared 70 miles fairly fast, around 12 hours. Um, sat down in this blue lawn chair, and once you sit down, after not having good nutrition, all this other shit, you're jacked up. You're real fucking jacked up. But I felt good up to mile 70. Feet were hurting. But once you sit down, everything kind of sparks. You're alive. And and your mind thinks we're fucking done. I'd only gone 20 miles the first I got my whole life. Now I've gone 70 with no training. So I had to literally get up to go to the bathroom. It was from here to 20 feet away from the chair. I couldn't stand up. My blood pressure was so messed up. So I looked at my um, ex-wife, who's now my ex-wife, and I said, um, have to go to the bathroom. I, and I literally um, went, to, I, I went to the bathroom myself. I shit up my back, started peeing blood down my leg, but very little, not a lot, not a lot, just a little bit. You were pissing blood. Pissing blood. So I had 30 more miles to go. And I was able to break this race down into how I do things now. I compartmentalize. I don't take, like let's say we have a table full of shit. Most of us see a table full of shit. I see a fucking corner full of shit. I'm able to to erase everything and focus on what the fuck is the most important thing that's going to fuck me up right now. So instead of thinking I have 30 miles to go, oh my God, I'm I'm, I'm pissing, I'm shitting, I'm jacked up. I was. But I calmed myself down. I called the one second decision where you just calm down. And the one second decision ruins everybody's life. And um, I was able to think... I need to get nutrition. I need hydration. I, I need to get this, this dizzy feeling done. I was able to do that. I was able to get out of that chair, and I was barely moving on this track, barely moving on this track. 
And about 81 is where I really realized that I hadn't even, everything I talked about, I hadn't even tapped into. And this is this is the scary thing about it. I know people misjudge me and I fucking hate that because they, they, they take what I say and they go far. This is, it's all relative. This is the one moment in my life that I realized a human being is the most, the human mind is the most amazing thing ever created, ever created. If you're able, I'm not saying kill yourself. Don't, so people who are listening to this, don't take this and flip it into your own shit. If you're able to go to a limit that you don't want to go, but you go anyway, and you allow your mind to realize he's not fucking around anymore, he's not playing, your mind's going to find a lot, a lot more. Not a little bit more. The whole thing about second wind is way beyond that. It's going to find a lot more. Once the mind, body, and spirit lean up, like, like link up into one, and they realize, and they become one. They become unison. You become someone that I can't even really explain, because I've only been there one time in my life. During that race. During this race. At mile 81, when she said, you're not going to make the time, I'm all fucked up. I ran the last 19, fuck, I ran the last 20 miles. Ran. I couldn't even walk. I couldn't, I was, I was all fucking messed up. And guess what? Once again, this shit is fucking dying. It's, 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 I've told the story a million times. Try to make me out to be a fucking liar. Try. 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 Why, why do people call bullshit on that? No, no one does. But it's, even when I say it, when I say my story to people, it, I don't even sometimes believe it at 43, some of the shit I've endured and some of the shit I was able to get through. So I, I say shit, I name drop shit, because almost like I'm, in, I'm almost insecure. Like, what the fuck Go are you Go ask them. Like, yeah, it's almost like, David, if I were to hear this story from somebody, I was with my fucking fiance, I'd say, this motherfucker's full of bullshit. I would say that. So when I tell my own story, I sound like I'm full of bullshit. I do. So... Because it's it, some of the shit I've, I've been through. I, I started this by saying you've done some shit that I didn't think was humanly possible, and that would be it. Let me ask you this then. So when you finish that race, the last 19 miles, when, you, when it's in your head like, I'm not giving up, I'm not giving up, at what percent capacity do you think you were functioning? At that point, are you 90, 95, or is there a much deeper thing here that we're still nowhere near what we could be? So I came up with this thing called the 40% rule. Right. A lot of things I've done in my life, people don't understand, I've had two heart surgeries. I had a significantly large hole in my heart, um, blood would pool through my lungs. Long story short, I wasn't healthy, at, really healthy at all. Going through SEAL training, Ranger School, uh, all the ultra races I did, I was very unhealthy, functioning probably at, from what they tell me, 40 to 60%. I, so I had this rule that I made up. This is something I made up in my own mind because I know how far... I've gone how far I went past what I thought was my best. I went way beyond that. So I call it the 40% rule. And the 40% rule is basically a governor, like, like a car. A car can go 130, but you put a fucking governor in a car, it may go 90. And the whole time you're driving, wanting to fucking floor it, you're thinking, the car says 130, but this fucking governor is here. It's, a, it's something that the manufacturer puts in the fucking car so you can't speed or where the fuck is for it. We do it to our own selves. We do it to our brains. We have all these mechanisms that are there for good reason to say, this is painful. Stop. You're suffering. Stop. This is uncomfortable. Stop. Slow down. All these stop signs in your fucking brain 
And so what you think is your 100%, you're so fucking short of that. You're so short of your 100%, maybe 40 to 60% tops. Through a period of time, through pushing myself a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further, what I once thought was my 100%, because trust me, that's 70 fucking miles I went, that was 100%. I could guarantee you, so I thought. So I thought. I went 30 fucking one more fucking miles. So whatever the percent that is you want to give it, give it. I was at the worst part of my entire life in any physical thing I've done in my life. Worst at 70 miles. And for somehow, way, or I was able to get up and go 31 more fucking miles being in the worst shape of my life. Dude, so how and what was the shit that you were thinking about in those 30 miles? I mean, that, that whole, was, that dialogue, that self-dialogue. The fuck were you telling yourself for those 30 miles? It was how the, did you get through the 30 miles? It's how I process things. I don't let myself get spastic. I don't let myself jump to the conclusions and, and like, like I did when I was younger. I don't allow myself to freak the fuck out and Stay quiet. Because I know where it gets me. It, it gets me to, to not think clearly. My rational thought process is gone. I want to find a way. And if there is no way, there's no way. Some things are impossible. And I know that. But a lot of things are very possible. But you have to be able to put your mind in a spot that's very quiet and quiet to noise. And also have a very weird way of thinking, very unique to me. I find energy through everything. And I found energy at mile 70 sitting in that chair. My whole big thing is, I hate to say what if, because I use it a lot. I use what if a lot, and what if's not strong enough for this moment. But there's a lot of times in my life where I visualize, once again, visualize is so very important to my life. What if you fucking can do 100 miles, man, being this fucked up? You are so fucked up right now, man. How will you feel? I would, I would have felt great if I quit at mile 70. Great. That was, that was an amazing accomplishment. But how would you feel if you do 100 miles? And I'm able to live in that moment of victory for a long fucking time. Because I want that five fucking seconds of when you cross that fucking finish line and you can... Like, so when, you're at, when I was on mile 99... You know the feeling I had? I can't, it almost brings tears to my eyes right now. Think about it. I was able to re, relive that last 99 months, but that last 29. I was able to relive that and the hell I was able to go through to get there. You, it's priceless. It's dangerous. It's risky. It may have been stupid. That is the biggest life lesson I've had in my entire life was that last 30 fucking miles of that race. SEAL training, all that bullshit, 205 miles. I failed the pull-up record before I got it three fucking... That last 30 miles, the biggest life lesson I probably ever have. You know what that was? That's the ultimate. You got a couple of jars on your shelf. You got a cookie jar and you got a jar of fuck. Yeah. That, that's the best cookie in the jar, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I do have this thing called the cookie jar, as you're talking about. It's, it's true. This was the biggest cookie in the jar that I'll ever be there. Because I know when times get hard... And it, and it gets hard for everybody. Life will throw some shit at you. I can go in my cookie jar, and my cookie jar is basically things I've, maybe not so much, we all have a story. We've, we've all overcome, but we forget. Even the hardest person in the world, when shit hits you in your fucking mouth, 
All you feel is the hit in your fucking mouth. You got to take a few seconds to remember. And you think, fuck, man, I'm getting old. I can't do this shit anymore. No. We, we stop. Think for a second. Reach into that mental cookie jar of all the shit life has handed you. Pull out that fucking fortune cookie. And it reads for me. One of them reads your last fucking 30 miles, motherfucker. You, you have a lot more. But we forget who we are in bad times. That cookie jar is a reminder of who the fuck you are, where the fuck you came from, how much more strength you have when times get bad. So it's, it's something I made up. I, I make up a lot of shit. Life is fucking hard, man. We all talk about like social media shit. We all talk about the great times of life. I don't talk about the great times of life. I'm a happy motherfucker, and if you don't think I am, Merry Christmas. I don't give a fuck. How can, how can you not be happy? When you've endured what I've endured and came out the other end with the resume, my resume is thick. I'm no longer dumb. I realize what the resume I have is. It makes you very proud of where you came from. And that pride doesn't come with a price tag. There's no, there's no dollar amount. If you have right now, hey, I'm going to give you $8 million fucking dollars. I swear to God, as I'm saying right now, I love God a ton. I'm going to give you $8 million for your, your mind. Fuck you. What's up here right now? This is... What, I, what I've created, people try to buy. They, they try to get it in a car, a Lamborghini, a big-ass house. What I have up here right now, what I, what all this shit I've come through. Dude, how could you put a price on there's it? There's no price tag you on it, You can't put man. a price on that suffering. So when people say, oh, my God, man, you're so, you're, you, you sound so miserable. What's sound? No, you, you hear what you want to hear. You don't hear what comes out the other side of the shit, man. Dude, can I tell you something? There's one thing that you don't get credit for, or maybe you do and I'm missing it. You are a funny motherfucker, too. I'm funny. You are funny, dude. You are yep. really funny, and I, I mean that respectfully. Oh, yeah. But funny knows funny. Because yeah. I feel like I'm a funny motherfucker, too. But no, I, 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 I never once thought that you were not happy and content because I understand why you're happy and content. Because to be happy and content, at least for you, right. you had to suffer. Right. You had to suffer, and you did. Listen, dude, you... I. I could do this for hours. This is one of my favorite days ever. I know you have other things, and there's no convenient way for me to end this. And I'm not looking to move you out. Dude, I could sit here for five more hours and do this, <laughs> but I know you have other business in Los Angeles and such. If there's something, I don't know, maybe there's somebody listening, and they want to be the best version of them, or they want more, or they don't even know how to start. Because, by the way, some people never even start. That whole conversation about, I was 24, and I had this fear that I might be the same guy at 50, would have meant that you didn't start. What is the message to that person? I get this question a lot, and I have several different answers. I mean, I could be here for an hour because there's so much do, to do. Do what you have to do. Then take your time but and answer the way answer the way you want to answer. It, it, it really comes down to total accountability of yourself. And, and I hate using these words because they're so... I fucking hate accountability and fucking mental toughness and all these shit that people... Like, tons of people write these great fucking sayings about success. We all see them and these, these great quotes from these people and shit. I don't read a lot of that shit because a lot of people who write this shit... What the fuck are you doing? Are you just saying some shit? Are you quoting some shit? Or are you living the shit that you're fucking quoting? So that's why I hate sometimes I hear myself talk. I live this shit. So the one thing I would tell these, these people, stop fucking looking for everything. Even me. I'm, I'm going to be like David Goggins. I'm going to be like this motherfucker. Be, I need to read a book about mental toughness. I need read, no, slow the fuck down. Go into a fucking dark mind, a dark, quiet room in your mind. Turn your fucking phone off. 
Shut computers down. Shut the world fucking out because it doesn't fucking matter. This world is fucked up. Everything is fucked up out here. People are lost. They're lost. Don't join them anymore. Don't join them. Go in a dark fucking room in your mind. Take hours, days, months. Be patient because it won't come overnight. Years. Do it every fucking day. Think about what the fuck you really want out of your fucking life. Understand that whatever you want, it's going to take a lot of suffering. You will suffer. People hate when I say suffer. You will suffer. You will fail. You will question yourself. People will doubt you. People will judge you. People will think that your story is bullshit. People will think you're bullshit. Wrap it up in a nice tight bow. Realize that it's yours. Everything that happened to you in your fucking life, your childhood, I don't care how the fuck you came up. People may cause you this Jewish person, gay, lesbian, transgender, black, white, wherever the fuck you came from. Own it. It's yours now. They ain't coming to save you. They ain't coming to say, I'm sorry I made fun of you. I'm sorry you ever learned disability. I'm sorry your dad beat the shit out of you. I'm sorry you were fat because you were fucking dis- you were disappointed in yourself. No one's coming to save your ass. Get it through your fucking head right now. There's no magical fucking book that you're going to read that's going to change your fucking life. Uh, yeah, I'm writing a book. It ain't going to change your fucking life. You may get some tips out of it. It's up to you to sit in that dark, quiet place in your fucking mind and realize only I can change my circumstances in my fucking life. No one, no one is coming to save you. I love God more than anything in the world. And people probably heard me cuss. Don't get it twisted, dude. Life fucking sucks. And these words are just words to express what life is. What life is versus me trying to tell you through a whole line of sentences. Fuck does a really good job of getting there real quick. So that's what it's used for. But I know that God has directed me down this path of journey, down this hard world. The people who want to listen to it and see it, they can see any human being can do anything. That's what my journey was for. There's no excuses. I didn't come from parents that gave me a silver spoon and all this shit. You can fucking accomplish whatever the fuck you want to accomplish if you change how you look at your life. But it's up to you, man, period. It's up to you. You got to quiet the noise, man. So that's the best advice I can give anybody. Write your own fucking book. Don't read somebody else's. Write your own fucking book. Do not read somebody else's. That said, your book's coming out. When is the book coming out? And if anybody listening wants any other information or wants to know anything about you, how do they go about doing it? What's the best way? Well, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I don't, I'm not really big in that You're not stuff. a high volume guy. No, though. I'm not you a high volume your spots. guy. I will be out there. I, I do about one post a week. I don't talk just to hear myself talk. I don't post pictures of me posing at the fucking beach or me drinking a fucking smoothie. Or this is my fucking acai bowl or a fucking smoothie. No, it's all real shit. I talk about, everything I talk about is a life lesson. Something that maybe you can take away. It's just how I think. It's, it's how I look at life. It's not about woe is me. It's about overcoming obstacles. And usually I use myself as the henchman as far as like, I'm fucked up. I'm not the best at anything. I'll never be the best at anything. I'm trying to. So you can follow me at, you know, it's all at David Goggins. On Facebook, on Instagram, stuff like that. Um, my book will hopefully be out in May. That's what we're shooting for. The, the, the process is very long. The process is very long, so I'm hoping to be out in May. You're a patient man. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's been six years. I've been writing this book in my mind for six years. I've been writing this book in my mind for 43 years. So if it waits another two or three years, who gives a shit? 
There you go. 25 episodes in the can. And if you're anything like me, David Goggins has you feeling like you can run right through a wall or at least an extra mile on the treadmill. If you enjoyed that conversation or you were able to take something from it, hit me up on Twitter and let me know. Also tag David in it as well. His handle is at David Goggins. That's at David, G-O-G-G-I-N-S. Lots of other stuff going on around the jungle, too. We have the simulcast airing every single day from noon to 3 on CBS Sports Radio and now CBS Sports Network. Also, if you ever missed the program, you can also double back with the Daily Jungle Podcast and get caught up that way. That's it for now. Please make sure you get subscribed, leave a review, and tell a friend on your way out. I appreciate that very much, and I'll be back in a week with EP26 on Tuesday the 27th. Until then, I'm out.